Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. I can tell this is the challenge in rowdy side. <laughs> So for the record, today is November 19th. This is lesson 11 in the book of Ecclesiastes, starting in chapter 8, verse 10. Actually, we're going to start with verse 14. So hopefully we'll get through chapter 9. not sure, but in my Bible, when I turn one page, I'm at the end of the book. So that's encouraging to me that we're moving along. We have... Um, if we get through nine today, we have three more chapters. I think we have four more weeks, so we got one week kind of a buffer in there, so that's good. So let's pray and we'll, we'll get started. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the blessing of being here today. We thank you that in your kind providence, you've arranged for us to be here with health and desire and vitality. And now we thank you for your word that you've given to us. And we I need the ministry of your spirit to us as we read and, and seek, uh, seek your wisdom and your word. And most of all, we pray that through your word, we would come to a greater knowledge of you, to a greater knowledge and, and the comprehension of the gospel. Thank you for each person that's here today, and I pray you would encourage them in whatever way is needed for them today. We love you, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, well, so I think uh, even though my, our notes start on verse 10, I think I want to go down to verses 14 to 15 to get, to get started as we finish up uh, chapter 8. So I'll read uh, 14 to 15. This is Ecclesiastes 8, verses 14 and 15. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and to be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given to him under the sun. So, uh, in verse 14, uh, one writer pointed out that this is troubling to the to the uh, to our author. We believe it's Solomon, and it's, again, it's the same troubling that he's had all along. But that he he actually begins the statement with the word vanity, and he ends the statement with the word vanity. So this doesn't make sense. And again, this is the uh, the Bible scholars call it the uh, character consequence combination of the book of, of, uh, of Proverbs. If Proverbs says, if you do this, you can expect this. If, if this is your character and behavior, then you can expect this to happen. And uh, all through the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer has said that doesn't, that doesn't always work. It doesn't always work that, doesn't work that way. <coughs> I thought it was interesting as I began to think about our study in uh, the book of Job, um, Solomon is figuring this out, I guess, as he, as he goes through life and observes how life is. He's got to figure it out on his own. 
in a sense, I guess we would say that God's Spirit is teaching him. But when we get to the book of Job, Job has a much more direct uh, line to heaven, doesn't he? When you get to the last of the book of Job. So I haven't studied Job in detail in a while, so I'm looking forward to seeing how that, how Job takes us even another step to deal with these uh, exceptions and sometimes apparently contradictions that we see uh, coming out of the book of Proverbs. So, um, verse 15, even while he lives with a conundrum of apparent injustice from God, he knows nothing better than to enjoy the life that God has given him. So here's another one of those carpe diem, you know, seize the day, um, advice that he gives. I think this is number four. Uh, if we get where I want to, we'll see number five uh, in chapter in chapter nine. Um, in this in this carpe diem, he takes it to another level. Before he's he's just observed that this is the case, but notice here in verse uh, fifteen, I commend this to you. So he's he's uh, pushing it forward. When we get to the carpe diem passage in chapter nine, it's even more so. And so I I think what we're seeing here is that. Um, the writer is still seeing these things that, ba that are baffling to them. It's an enigma. It's vanity. Uh, and so that, that uh, strengthens his conclusion that the way to live in this life is to, is to live in the day and, and to receive uh, with joy the things that God has, has provided. And I think he really does believe that God is good. It doesn't look like that sometimes because of what he sees. He sees injustice and he sees uh, pain and, and distress. Um, but I think he's got to hold on to that, that God is good. I remember hearing a, a man tell his story. His, his, uh, in fact, this, this fella, and I can't remember his name, he wrote that book, and I can't remember the title of it, but it's on the lament, the idea of lament. Uh, Bocroft, I think is his name, and I heard him speaking last year that several years earlier um, his wife was um, 34 weeks pregnant and they lost a heartbeat and they went to the doctor and found out the baby had, had died and, and uh, they got in the car afterwards you know, just broken hearted and he said, sweetheart, how are you doing? And she said, well, I know that God is good, but it sure doesn't seem like it right now. So I thought about that. Um, so that, that's, that was the genesis of him writing this book on, on lamenting. That sometimes I think that really is a, a, a very important uh, pathway for us when we've had something so terrible, so distressful, so sad that it looks like a dead end. Um, the, the process of lamenting is the way through, through that. And that, you may know that 50 of the 150 Psalms are Psalms of Lamentation. So a third of the Psalms are written by people that were going through really difficult times and they, they wrote out their, their prayer of lamentation. So um, he doesn't deal with that here really, but I just think that's such a good important process for us to, if what we see in life or what we experience in life doesn't look like God is good, 
we know because of his word that he is good, uh, but, the, but lamentation is a way to, to work through that really, really well. The other thing that I do, and um, when, when I look at the world or I look at maybe my own life and, and I question, well that doesn't sound good for me to say I question God's goodness because we're not supposed to do that, but when I don't seem to be experiencing God's goodness, um, I, all, I, I will always find my perspective corrected by looking at the cross, by looking at what, what happened there at the cross, because if there ever was an occasion in the history of the universe that doesn't look like God is good, if you just looked at the outward experience, you would say, well, that's it. God let his only begotten son be falsely accused and, and suffered at the hands of evil men. Uh, we would think that was not good. But we know more was happening there. So again, I'm just back to this uh, uh, commitment that uh, to preach the gospel to ourselves every day is, is what corrects our understanding and our vision of who God is. I don't have any other way to do it than to, than to look at God and look at life through the lens of the gospel. And uh, when things don't look like they're, like they're good. Anybody have a thought about about that lamentation and gospel. But I was really down yesterday, I guess, or the day before, and I just got a gospel track and read it to myself. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think I prayed the prayer at the end of the track, but I, just, <laughs> but I just read it to myself, and it was just refreshing to me. To, and that's how God ministers to me. Maybe, maybe He will to you, too. Okay. Well, um, now 16 and 17, he kind of comes to the end of this section, but I think we'll see that, as you know, there are no chapter divisions in the original Hebrew, so the, the, the text continues to flow. But here I think in 16 and 17, he really reaches a new level of humility in his looking at life and trying to understand uh, what it means. I think when, when Solomon began this, this uh, process, uh, he really thought, well, I'm a wise man. I ask God for wisdom, and I'm, you know, I'm known for wisdom, so I can figure this out. And uh, he can't. Now, one reason why he can't is because he's, he's adopted this, uh, this way of learning with his own, what the Bible scholars call autonomous wisdom. So he's lost the fear of God, which is the, you know, what is the, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. He's lost that. And we know he has because in the in First um, Kings 11, when he when he welcomed the pagan women into his harem into his family, uh, he was you know, he was apostatizing there at that time. But I think he's beginning to see that even for a wise man, uh, he can't get this all figured out. So let's look at uh, I'll, I'll read 16 and 17 to us. This is Ecclesiastes 8. 16 and 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that made that, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know he cannot find it out. So 
there's his conclusion. And I think he's, he's reached a really important place. Uh, he said, I thought I could figure this out. I thought that I could see what God was doing and understand it and make sense in my own life. He said, I can't do it. And I think that's really, really important. I, I just wrote uh, the ultimate observation, God is sovereign, let's live with it, let's deal with it. And, and uh, if, if we can always keep these two things in the right uh, together, God is a sovereign and God is good, uh, we'll be okay. But, you know, the conundrum, the problem is, we think, well, from what I see in the world, uh, both of those things can't be true. That, that's the big, you know, big question that our, that anybody's thinking seriously about life has to deal with. But we can deal with that too. We have to deal with that, with that too. Um, so it was interesting in verse uh, 16. He says, "I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth." So he's looking, he's seeing, but as he was trying to see all that that's happening. Uh, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. I couldn't see what was going on and I couldn't see sleep either. So he's losing sleep over this, um, over this situation. But um, God, God is good and God is in control. And I think he's settled into that um, in, at this place in his book. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, another verse that I'm, when I hit these, these walls and I don't know what to do with what God is doing. I just really like Romans 11, 33 to 36. I memorized it one time and then I've forgotten it, so I wrote it down again yesterday. Now, Romans 11, of course, is the third chapter of 9, 10, and 11 in Romans where Paul is dealing with all this really deep stuff about salvation and election in Israel and the Gentiles and who more just uh, I know some preachers that preach the book of Romans and they skip chapters 9, 10, and 11 because it's just hard to deal with. But apparently it was a little bit of a challenge for the Apostle Paul too. Because here's how he finished at the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So I think we could put that at the end of this chapter and also at the, obviously, where the Apostle Paul, Paul put it. So other, other thoughts or comments about this conundrum of God's goodness and God's sovereignty, how they are both true, but don't often look like it. Often we look at God's goodness uh, only from the perspective of our own lifetime, our own self, and don't realize that He's doing something that may be what we perceive as evil to work out good in someone else's life or in the distant future. Mm -hmm. And we don't perceive it, so it's hard for us to resolve those things. Good, that's good. Now God's doing things we can't see. But I, I think you'd agree that, but even with that, it may, maybe God's doing something in the life of someone else. It's still act of goodness toward us. We can't see that either, but it is, we know that, it is, that He is good toward us because He said He 
he would conform us to the image of Christ and everything that he does is to do that. Good work. Thank you. Other, other thoughts about that? I think we equate goodness with comfort. Mm -hmm. And again, there's a conflict between comfort and Christ-likeness. So if we actually perceive Christ-likeness as the greatest good, then we could see being conformed into his image as being good regardless of the level of discomfort. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. Uh, thank you. Okay, well, let's jump into chapter 9 and uh, see where we're going here. I'm indebted to uh, uh, to David Gibson for the, the outline for the first part of chapter 9. So chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, one thing in life is certain. And then uh, 9... Uh, 7 through 10, the simple things in life <clears throat> that are wise. This is the fifth carpe diem. <coughs> and then uh, 9, 11, and 12, the many things in life that are uncertain. And we have a little closing to the chapter, uh, to the chapter there. So uh, I think this continues his, his um, train of thought from chapter 8. But uh, Gibson sees this as kind of a summary of, of uh, the preachers, what, the, what he's learned uh, so far and he said he's kind of given us a chance to take a breath and to think about these things again before he goes into other things by the way i don't know where he's going i haven't studied 10 11 i've studied 12 i know what the last two verses say you can figure out where he's going if you want to go there but uh, he's going somewhere with this and i think you know we see more and more how he's becoming more and more convinced that god is sovereign god is good and so seize the day and live uh, live for this for this day so um, verse uh, I'll read uh, 9 9 verse 1 but all this I laid to heart examining it all how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God so there's a clear theological statement whether it is love or hate man does not know uh, both are before him what do you think he means? You're in the hands of God, but you don't know if it's love or hate. What is that? Where is that going? The Bible scholars don't know either, so don't worry. You don't know. Just concerning the motives and the motives of the heart behind those two things. Okay. Love and hate. Just being able to divide rightly all of I think so. So you're talking, Michael, you don't know what's coming from people, where they're going to love you. Or even your own self. Okay. Just, That's good. You know, knowing yourself and realizing that you don't. Sometimes, but that God, God's able to divide those things right. Like, yeah. And sometimes, I, and one one fellow said, and sometimes you don't even feel God's love through the circumstances that you're in. And like uh, both Ty and Mark said, you can't go by the outward experience of what's happening to know whether that's. Uh, of course, in Christ, we're not worried about God's hate, but um, we can't always we can't always know. Or verse 2, um, it is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. What is the same event he's talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Yep, death. He loves this word, doesn't he? <laughs> he just keeps bringing us back to it. 
as uh, Gibson said, yet again the preacher asked us to look long and hard and carefully at the one thing in life that we know is certain. So he starts with verse 1. There's a lot we don't know for certain, but verse 2, but there's one thing you do know for certain, and that's what's, uh, uh, what's coming, verse 2. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. The good, and then he has these, you know, these pairs here that are, that are opposites. To the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. At, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. I think that means he who swears and keeps his oath is the same as one who swears but doesn't keep his oath. That's the point. The point there. Um, so, so verse uh, yeah. So verse ten. Let me skip verse verse two. Um, yeah, death levels the playing field uh, for all of these for all of us. And then verse three. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. But then he adds something else. But also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness in their hearts while they live. And after that, they're dead. So notice, uh, I think I have a note there from, from somebody, Kohelet, or the preacher, despairs not only the common fate of humankind, but also of humankind itself. So this is, we got big trouble here, because not only is everybody going to die, uh, but, but all men are, are sinful. You know what, Genesis 6-5, remember the context of that? That's the flood. Remember what, remember what God said about the heart of man before the flood? He looked and... It's really bad, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, Jeremiah 17, 9. Um, it's desperately wicked. Yeah, the heart is... Right. Who can understand it? Right. So, he's observing that. Well, uh, David Gibson said, therefore I cause my own death. And notice, um, which comes first? You have to read this and think about it for a minute. Look at verse 3. Which, um, which causes the other? The first half of the verse or the second half of the verse? Hope I'm giving you enough thought to think what I'm trying to think here. There's two truths that he presents in uh, in this verse. I'm saying simple causes death. Yeah. Thank you, Shane. That's exactly what I'm what I want us to see here. Um, I, and I thought about Romans five. Let's see, Romans uh, five. Oh, yeah, five twelve and following. Just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all, because in Adam we all sin. And then that, boy, that verse that really fits what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. Then therefore death reigned through one man, Adam, over every man except the Lord Jesus, or Jesus Christ. So. Um, he's got good theology here, and of course, um, but uh, but righteousness reigns through the one man, Jesus Christ, and he's got, he's reversing all this. He's reversing the process of death uh, for his people.
Well, then, let's read verses uh, 4 through 6. But he, but, but he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. A little proverb there he picked up from somewhere. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all uh, that is done under the sun. So, um, even though this life is hard, he says it's better to be alive than it is to be dead. That kind of makes sense, I guess. Why does he say it's better to be alive than it is to be dead? There's hope. Yeah, there's hope. Yeah, he uses, I think he uses the word hope here, doesn't he? Does he? Yeah. Yeah, verse 4, there's hope. So, Haley, unpack that hope for... Okay, good. It's a, there's an opportunity for repentance, for, for learning, for growing. Good. Mark? I'm thinking about the Christmas Carol, one of Andrew's favorite stories, and about Scrooge. You know, he, he sees his grave. There's nothing you can do once you're dead. Mm -hmm. And so he asks the, uh, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Is there any way I can change this? Is it possible for you know men's futures to be changed? You know? And so that's kind of like his conversion. Okay. There. And so I, I kind of I think about that as being you know when you're dead, you you spend it. You know, it's, yeah. it's gone. So anyway, we should be like Scrooge. Yeah, that's good. And I think again he's saying. Um, have you been to your funeral lately? Now that's a strange thought, isn't it? Have you have you uh, gone forward in your mind and think about your own funeral? In that book, David Gibson work, you know, live backwards, live life backwards. Look at your funeral and see what that means, and then adjust your life as you look as you live, uh, live backwards as you. So I think. Uh, I think you're right, Haley. It gives opportunity for repentance, for for um, for salvation, and particularly in light of what we see next in verse seven, this carpe diem uh, passage. It gives you opportunity uh, to live. So this is this begins another, another section. The simple things in life that are wise. This is the fifth carpe diem passage. And it is the strongest one in the whole book. So we see him moving. You know, carpe diem uh, sees the day. So look at the first word in verse 7. That's an interesting word. What do you think he's... Where is he, why did he put that in there? Go. Just get moving. That's right. Let's get with it. You know, let's... Listen to what I've been saying to you, and let's go. Let's in, let's uh, let's enjoy this day that God has that God has given to us. And isn't this an interesting statement? Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine. Now that's a, well, the wine is new, so he's gaining some liberty somewhere, I guess, to drink some some wine. Um, the wine is new, maybe to add a, a kind of a sense to the festive nature of what life. Uh, life should be, but uh, 
Let's see, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. What does that mean? God has already approved. I mean, surely that's not a blanket statement that we ought to speak about ourselves or, or you wouldn't tell your children that, would you? I've already approved whatever you want to do. Well, I think what I read in the commentaries, and if you use the context here, God has approved you having joy and merriment in the gifts that I've given to you. Because that's why he gave them to us. To enjoy those, enjoy those things. Um, and I think that's an important message for us to get today. Maybe for different reasons. Why is it sometimes we don't enjoy the simple gifts that God has given to us? Uh, setting up the kingdom, we have revelation. Uh, the next, and you just have triple the Discontent. Okay, yeah. discontentment. Don't feel like we deserve them. Okay, unmerited. Yeah. And that would be true, wouldn't it? Yeah. I know my mother used to say when she'd give me something, I would say, oh, you didn't have to do that. Or she said, Dan, he just say thank you. You know, that's all you got to do. So, uh, I think sometimes we're just running so fast we don't take time to slow and stop. And I, I've been trying to do something and I, I don't get it done every time. But when I have a meal in front of me, I want to look at that meal and realize two or three things. One, this is God's goodness to me. And so this morning I had a bowl of cereal with a banana. And I thought, how many people did God use to get this all this together with some milk in front of me? You know, thank God for that. But the main thing I want to see in that, uh, in that meal is that God is good. He's provided for me again. And uh, that I'm completely uh, dependent upon Him. So I can transfer that to my spiritual life too. I'm completely at your debt. I'm, I have, I'm completely unmerited in, in the gifts that you've, that you've given to me. So I think we ought to do that. And I've been trying to do that with my grandkids when we... You know, they'd be in our home for a meal, and I would kind of extrapolate in my prayer. And Amy Lou saying, "Amen, Amen." She, she wants to get food so we can, she can get to the to the sandwich. But uh, just stopping and, and enjoying what God has given to us and, and rejoicing in it. Other other thoughts about just enjoying what God has given. Yeah. If you look at the Ten Commandments, one way to look at them would be, here's a list of things not to do because doing these things interferes with living. Okay. Living the way God wants you to, which is what life really is. Don't follow these actions that lead down to destruction and interfere with enjoyment of living. They may look like they add enjoyment, but they destroy what yeah. kind of living enjoyment that Solomon's yeah. writing. That's right good. So the Ten Commandments are gifts of God to us because to, He loves us and wants to show us the, the best way. Yeah, that's good. So a lot of that is Why well, I just think it's so important just to continue to recognize the goodness of God and how. I was going to say that um, because of the uh, the frequency and how we get blessings from the Lord, it becomes a given. You know, you don't put as much, well, for most people, don't put as much uh, value to it 
because oh. it's going to be there. God will produce. Okay. And 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 that's usually what the reaction is that we have instead of thinking how good is my God to provide this for me? Mm -hmm. I don't deserve it. Um, so presumption, maybe we yeah, just presume it. Yeah. It's always assumed that it's going to be there. Yeah, good. And because you know everybody can buy or charge or anything, yeah. it's it's no big deal. But it is a big deal. It should be. So let's slow down a little bit and and grab these moments that God gives to us and you know enjoy them and be thankful for them. Um, yeah, verses 8 and 9. Well, let your garments all, verse 8, let your garments always, uh, be always white and let not oil be lacking on your head. And then enjoy life with the wife uh, whom you love all the days of your vain life. Um, you see my note there, David Gibson notices the wedding imagery which should point to the coming wedding banquet. So, uh, bread and wine, white garments, oil for the head and the hair, and a bride, a wife. So he sees the wedding imagery here, that, which should be a happy festive time. And um, he quotes a lot of C.S. Lewis about, about this idea of our experience today should make us hungry for where we really want to be. And he, let's see, I think I have a quote. There, the gifts are from the real country. They smell and taste and feel like home. <clears throat> he quoted a couple of authors that I don't know. Um, uh, Jesus, in the Gospels, he often spoke of a future wedding feast in the eternal kingdom of God. But he also ate many meals with the saints. You think about how many meals he had, and, the, and sinners too, didn't he? In the Gospels, uh, one man said, let's see, a guy named David Ford, Jesus literally ate his way through the Gospels. He enjoyed uh, a meal with the Gospels. I mean, in, in the Gospels with different people. Uh, I remember, and, and our culture doesn't do that real well, at least I don't do it personally, of taking time with a meal to make it a time of fellowship and joy. I remember one time I was in Puerto Rico, and we were going to meet a man uh, that was helping us with the accounting of our work in Puerto Rico. And I said, well, we can meet him on the way to the airport. My, and my Puerto Rican leader, the guy, he said, okay, when does your plane leave? I said, at noon. He said, well, we'll meet him at 9 o'clock. And I said, well, we're only 15 minutes from the airport. And you see what happened. Um, we had breakfast by 9.30, we were through, and I'm thinking, well, what am I gonna do now? Said, but we just sat there and talked for two hours. And uh, it was really a challenge for me to just sit. And I don't even remember what we talked about, but that was their culture, you know, just relax and let's uh, talk. And boy, I need to do more of that. You probably do too, with all the hurry, as hurried as we are. Uh, oh, and I thought about Psalm 23. You have said what? You have said a... You have prepared a table, a table before me in the presence of my enemies. One guy uh, that Gibson quoted, uh, Jeffrey Myers, said the book of Ecclesiastes is a table in the mist. Now that word mist is this, is this word hevel, uh, fleeting, uh, temporary. And so he says, set up a table even in the mist, you know, in the, in the very 
temporariness of your life set up a table there. And then because of this perspective, oh, I, I always like to include the Doug Wilson quote. I don't know what you think about Doug Wilson, but he is provocative in what he says. So he says, we cannot really understand that it is our portion, because he says that, uh, now let me read verse, let me read verse nine. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. You know, accept, accept what God has given to you and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. So Wilson says, we cannot really understand that it is our portion until we have faith in the God who apportions these things which we are to enjoy or pass to us from his, from his hand. Again, it's, the, it's just the beauty of, the, of recognizing the goodness of God and he has given me what I'm to enjoy today, not what my neighbor wants or something like that. It's just the goodness of God that he's provided for me. Well, verse 10 uh, puts kind of a conclusion on this. Now, therefore, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your, do it uh, with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. Um, so his point has been, you may not, you can't find out the big picture about your own life. You don't know what's going to happen in the next minute or in the next months or years. And you don't, you, we can't even tell for sure, you know, what's, going, what's God's big plan for the whole universe. Now we have some inside information because of the gospel, but as far as our day-to-day -day living, we don't know that. So he said, we can't, um, my note there for verse 10, well, we cannot find a large-scale understanding of life. Um, we can find purpose in the daily life that God gives to us. The carpe diem perspective should spur us on to a vigorous commit commitment and uh, to excellence. So because of this perspective, we're not only to enjoy what God has provided for us, but we're to vigorously pursue the task that he has uh, before us. Um, we're going to talk uh, later on about the whole idea of duty and how duty has lost its place of prominence in our culture. Uh, we're more on the, on the idea of privilege than we are of duty, but if you read the last two verses of the book, you're going to say he's, a, he's really big on, on, on duty. Okay, I think we're going to be able to finish up this chapter here. Let's... Uh, Verses uh, 11 and 12. <clears throat> Again, I saw under the sun, the, the race is not to the swift. Now he gives, I think, five, five examples of how life ought to work. But he said, but it doesn't always work that way. So he's, he's doing his exception thing with the book of Proverbs. You could probably find all of these in the book of Proverbs. And, and they would... They, he would say there that they work, but he says, I've been seeing that they don't always work. Again, I saw, this is verse 11, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen uh, to them all. Um, so he's just making this point that his observation is this isn't always how it, 
how it happens. Uh, one guy, interestingly, described this maybe as the life process of a young man. So notice um, that the race is not to the swift, so there's the young man's sports activities. Um, nor the battle to the strong, there's his military career. Um, nor bread to the wise, maybe that's his marriage establishing a, uh, a family. Uh, nor riches to the intelligent, that is accumulating <coughs> wealth <coughs> and, um, and then public influence, um, favor with those uh, with knowledge. So that was kind of interesting. Saying even to a young man, um, you may have your life all planned out, but it may not happen like you have it planned. Because look at this next statement. But time and chance happens to them all. Um, one Hebrew guy said, but, but happenings happen to everyone. Un, unpredictable, unexpected happenings happen to, to everyone. Um, for man does not know his time. And that, that harkens back to chapter 3, doesn't it? There is a time for everything. And, and Solomon is saying, you don't know where you are in those, what, 12 things about there's a time for this and time for that. You don't know where you are in that. And then he gives these two images from hunting. Um, so think about it. He, he says, we're like a fish and we're like a bird. So there in verse uh, 12, uh, for man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net. Now you just think about a fish taken in an evil net. I mean, to the fish, the, the net's definitely evil, isn't it? But he doesn't know it's coming. He's just swimming along and, and, uh, and suddenly he's taken. And like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. And I made that note, or, or uh, a, um, a quote, two images from hunting in the animal kingdom evoke the horror of an unexpected sudden evil time. <coughs> and for the fish and the, and the bird, they probably both lead to their death. So again, he's just showing uh, we don't know our time. We don't know these, when these events would happen um, to Man, us. Isn't it there's no really no such thing as chance though. That's that's just not there isn't any. No, there's not. It sure looks like it sometimes, doesn't it? Uh, or coincidence for that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're we're all under God's God's hand. Well, um, I guess we'll finish up the next little part. But I thought I saw this uh, somebody. Somebody said, Solomon's twin in the New Testament is James. So James is the book of wisdom in, in the New Testament. So I thought we'd maybe just close with reading this passage from James 4, 13 to 16. And just look how it tracks along perfectly with what we've been seeing here. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year and there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Well, carpe diem. We'll see you. Uh, we'll, the Lord willing, we'll see you next uh, next week.